Why don't we always receive an immediate response from God? Whether we're praying for direction, help, or clarity. Why does it seem as though God is silent sometimes? Is it because of something that we've done? Sure, sometimes our bad decisions actually disrupt our ability to hear and recognize God's voice. But God's silence is not always a sign that something is wrong. See, often God's silence is intentional and purposeful, and it's not a result of something bad that we've done. But no matter what, God has a purpose for the silence. Within this silence, there's always a message for us. So let's jump into the scriptures to see what God's word says about this as we end this series all about hearing the voice of God. Today we're going to end this series on hearing God's voice. And I've laid out for the past 10 episodes uh, the overall progression of things. We know God's voice and then when we hear his voice, we'll recognize his voice. There'll be that initial suspicion and then we'll discern that this is indeed the voice of God. We'll be receptive and we'll listen to, we'll shema, we'll act on what it is that God is calling us to do. Okay, so if you're not used to that progression, if this is your first time jumping into this series and you're in the last episode, I encourage you to go watch the last 10. It'll bring a lot more clarity to what we're doing. We've laid the foundation for everything we're talking about today. Today we're talking about the silence of God. And this was... Honestly, one of the more difficult messages for me to prepare, uh, mainly because I didn't have a sense of direction. I was really confused on the idea. Number one, how do we define silence? Number two, how do we qualify silence? Number three, you know, another way to ask it, you might say is, how, what does it even mean? What does it look like for God to be silent in our lives? And I don't think I have to convince you guys that sometimes God is speaking and we're not listening. That essentially is the premise of this whole series is that God is speaking a lot of the times, but we're not listening. You know, maybe we're distracted. Maybe we're living in sin. Maybe we're looking in the wrong places for God's answer and God's direction. Maybe we just aren't as receptive as we think to what God is saying and doing in our lives. But there are times, okay, I will say this, there are times, not always, not often, I'm not going to put any kind of label on it, but there are times when there's nothing particularly wrong about God being silent about something in our lives. It's intentional on the part of God. It's purposeful. Some might even say, according to scripture, it's necessary to have those moments of silence and us kind of floundering a bit and scraping for something and and reaching for something to grab onto. And in those seasons, in those moments, God has a divine purpose. So what do we usually mean when we say God is silent in our life? Usually what that means is we're asking, why is God not giving me an answer to my question, my concern, or my prayer request? Why is God silent? I don't sense he's speaking to me as much as he was in a past season. I don't believe God is as loud or as vocal as he was in previous seasons of my life. You know, there are these different ways we qualify the silence of God. So apart from all of that, I love that we have an under, we have this concept of God being silent because it helps us to really dive into the scriptures and explore this a little more. But my question is, what does it mean for an ancient Hebrew when they are talking about God being silent? What does it mean for their, from them, for their, from their perspective, uh, for God to be silent? And according to scripture, here's what I here's what I found. I discovered a few things in my journey you know, for this message. It's not incredible, but I, some of you will be like, duh. But for me, it wasn't a duh moment. It was a whoa. That actually makes a lot more sense. Um, the way they qualify the silence of God. So I'll just give you the explanation up front. I'm going to take you through the Psalms, Isaiah, just to give you a few examples. I don't think I have to give you an exhaustive list. But for God to be silent... 
um, from the ancient Hebrew perspective and from their understanding, according to Scripture, it means that God is speechless. He is without response to the cries and the distress of his people. And you go, that's how I qualify God being silent. Hold on. It doesn't refer to God not giving direction. And again, there's probably different context to define the silence of God, and there's nuance to this, and there's different dimensions of God's silence. But overall, the conversation on God being silent for the majority of the Old Testament means this. Um, God is not answering the cry of his people with divine action. God is not acting for his people. And of course, there's subcategories within that. There's God, maybe for you, action on the part of God is God is not giving me direction. God is not telling me what to do next. God is not showing me the next step. God is not answering my cry for help or wisdom or financial provision or a relationship. God is not answering that cry. And you would qualify God acting as those things. I think those are subcategories within the general idea of God not acting. But to make it very plain and clear, when we say from a biblical perspective, that God is silent, what they typically mean is God is not acting towards the cries and the distress of his people. Let me show you a few examples. Psalm 28 verse 1. The psalmist says, to you, O Lord, I do call my rock. Don't be deaf to me. Okay, so that's referring to the reception of God. Lest if you be silent to me, that's referring to like the the aspect of God delivering a message, right? So you have the reception of God and you have the, you know, delivery of a message from God. Lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. And you go, what is it that the psalmist is asking God to not be deaf towards? What is the psalmist asking God to not be silent to him about? Verse two says, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. When I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards you, towards your most holy sanctuary. Don't drag me off with the wicked. As you're going to see in the passages that I'm going to refer to, there's a lot of this talk about the wicked and their demise and their ultimate destiny and what God is going to do to them and what God should do to them. And then within that is the righteous crying for help and having a sense of distress. So the psalmist says, don't drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil. They speak peace with their neighbors, but there's evil in their hearts. Give to them according to their work. Hold on. What is the psalmist asking God to do? What is the call to action here? Give the wicked what they deserve and what they've earned for themselves. According to the evil of their deeds, give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Four different times the same idea is communicated. Four different times. Because they don't regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. So right after the psalmist says, do this, in verse 5, the psalmist says, God will do this. So it's both this anticipation of what's absolutely going to happen, but this in-between period of when is it going to happen, though? <laughs> like, I know you're going to. I know you're just. I know you're righteous. I know you're the perfect judge. When are you going to render righteous judgment, though? That's the question. Please don't be deaf to my cries. Please don't be silent to me. What the psalmist is pleading for is justice, is righteousness on the part of God to come through and defend uh, the, the victim, defend the widow, the orphan, uh, the stranger, the foreigner, to step in and give the enemies of God what they deserve, right? Psalm chapter 35, 
Now, again, I'm not saying this is the only way to define the silence of God or the only way God's silence in our life will, 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 will appear, but this just seems to be the general undertone of God being silent throughout the scriptures. It seems to be, whether you look at the period of the judges, the period of silence between the prophets and John the Baptist, whether you look at the period of Israel and Egypt, it's there's a, there's a time where God is not acting. It's intentional. It's purpose behind it. There's a lot of moving parts to this. God is overseeing all of creation and all, all the different components with the nations and people's sin being filled up to the full. All of that is a part of God not acting for his people yet. Not yet. Not yet. I know you're in Egypt. Not yet. I know you're in Babylon, not yet, right? I know the, the Midianites have overtaken you, not yet. And there's this period of, but when, but when? Psalm 35, 22 through 24 says, you have seen, O Lord, don't be silent. Let's think about what Psalm 28 talked about. Psalmist is crying out for vindication and justice. So for God to not deliver that at this moment in time is what it means for God to be silent from the perspective of the psalmist. You have seen, O Lord, don't be silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication. For my cause, my God and my Lord, vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness. Don't let them rejoice over me. Don't let them say in their hearts, aha, our heart's desires. Don't let them say we've swallowed him up. God, let them be put to shame and disappointed altogether who rejoice at my calamity. There's this call for justice once again, isn't there? There's this call for vindication and God judge the wicked, judge the evil, give them what's coming to them, defend the righteous, right? Don't be silent. Don't be quiet. Listen to our cries. Psalm 50 verse 3. Our God comes. Watch. He doesn't keep silence. Is this talking about God delivering a message to his people? No, before him is a devouring fire. You might say, well, the message is, is, is within the action. Sure, every time God acts, there's a revelation of his character and his goodness, a message within that that we ought to pay attention to. Absolutely. But before him is a devouring fire. Around him is a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Hmm. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is what? Is judge. Is judge. So this is talking about God being righteous, God being judge, God being vindicator, God being the one who rightfully brings um, vengeance. He says vengeance is mine. And the psalmist, once again, is crying out for what? For God to not keep quiet. For God to not keep his hands in his pockets. He's going, could you please act for your people? Which, again, there's all these different periods throughout biblical history where we see these silent years. And sometimes you can chalk it up to a people's disobedience and rebellion. Other times it seems as though there's no way, like in the part of Job, you know, why isn't God answering him? The text and the end of the story never actually answers that, that question, that question we all have. Why? Why'd you let it happen? What are you doing? And why didn't you at least give me some kind of message within that and speak to me as I was waiting for you? Why? Psalm 109 says, Be not silent, O God of my praise. 
For wicked and deceitful mouths, they're opened against me. Speaking against me with lying tongues. So guess what the psalmist is concerned with? It seems as though what we've seen in Psalm 28, 35, and 50. The wicked who are not getting what seems to be um, deserved. Right? Wicked and deceitful mouths, lying. They encircle me with words of hate. They attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me. I give myself to prayer. They reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Now, this is where the psalmist goes, Okay, God, would you please do this? Do what? Appoint a wicked man against that wicked person. Let an accuser stand at his right hand, right? Condemnation. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. This is an interesting concept that we'll tackle more in depth when we get to prayer. But this idea of prayer being somewhat um, um, influenced by our own walk, our own life, not whether or not God is listening on the in terms of receiving that information, but whether or not God will act. We'll talk about this later. I just think it, it reminds me of the uh, the paralytic who gets healed, or the blind man in John nine. I forget where it is, and. Um, He's brought before the Pharisees, and they and he goes, we know that God doesn't listen to sinners, right? There's this idea in, in um, Hebrew thought, which is that God doesn't regard the prayer of those who are, and you go, well, he's talking about sinners, those who are not children of God, those who are dead in sin. But is there some truth to the fact that even as a child of God, our prayers can be corrupted by, um, perverted by, maybe influenced by our own um, walk and whether we're living in sin or not, something to think about. Psalm 6, or Isaiah chapter 62, I'm just going to take you Isaiah. It says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. Mm, this is the Lord speaking here. This is no longer the psalmist crying out for God to not be quiet anymore and, and for God to take his hands out of his pockets. Now, this right here is God saying, for Zion's sake, for the benefit, the good, the sake of another, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness, all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. In this situation, it's actually God's step. Once There's no talk of the wicked explicitly here, but the idea is implicit, which is that God is defending, uh, justifying, uh, vindicating his people Israel here. Specifically, Jerusalem is in mind. Okay, and it looks like their righteousness shining. It looks like the nations, whether that be the believing pagans or the unbelieving pagans, possibly both, seeing the righteousness. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 9 through 12. Okay, um, this is Isaiah <clears throat> saying, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We're the clay, you are our potter. We're the work of your hand. Some of you. Me included, need to be reminded of that. Don't be so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please, please look. We are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. At this point in Isaiah's prophecy, um, it's referring to the fact that Babylon has already come through, I believe, or... They're right on the cusp of Babylon coming through. But talking about desolation and wilderness, that can either be due to Babylon coming in or Israel kind of, or Jerusalem destroying itself from within. Either way, 
Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. Okay, Babylon has come in. There you go. And all our pleasant places have become ruins. What is Isaiah crying out to God about? The destruction of his people, the desolation of the temple, and the fact that Zion has become a wilderness, which carries a lot more depth to it than we think. And he's crying out for God to do something. Look at verse 12. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Watch the language. Will you keep silent? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? So far, the consistent theme of God being silent, and again, I didn't pick and choose what would fit my narrative and my point. I scoured the scriptures, and consistently what I saw was when God is silent. There's a lot of times where people are silent or congregations are silent, but when God is silent or when he's declared as being silent, it refers to him not acting in response to the cries of his people. No answer. And it's not a message per se, it's activity. It's a response by his hand. Isaiah 65 verse 6, this is, Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent. This is the Lord speaking. I will repay. I will repay into their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord, because they made offerings on the mountains. They insulted me on the hills. And I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. So this is referring to the destruction, I believe, that's coming upon um, Jerusalem. I was ready to be sought. And he's actually telling his people, I had my hands out all day, but instead judgment has come upon you and more judgment is coming. Babylon comes into Jerusalem in waves, right? So he says, I won't keep silent. What is the opposing idea of silence? Repaying. So for God to be silent means he's not repaying, right? For God to not be silent means he's repaying, he's acting. Every time, so far we've seen, it refers to justice. God acting, vindicating, um, stepping in, destroying the wicked, defending the righteous, okay? And so I just want to put that up front for you to think through and meditate on. And so when we wait in silence in our own lives, or when we see in scripture people are waiting in silence, it seems as though people are most often waiting for the Lord to act. And I was tempted to just explore all these ideas in depth, but I remembered we already did a series all about waiting on the Lord. So I'm going to reference you to that. I'll link it in the description of this video uh, once the rebroadcast is up. I didn't think to do that. So I'll link that below for you guys who haven't actually watched it. I encourage you to watch it because I'm just going to barely scratch the surface. And I really mean barely scratch the surface when we talk about waiting in silence here. I've unpacked this in depth in a 9, 10 episode series. Psalm 94, 16 and 17 says, Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would as soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. And right before this, it talks about justice returning to the righteous and the Lord not forsaking his people. And guess what? Instead of us going down in silence, God is the help of his people. And so as we wait in silence, whatever that looks like for you, in whatever season of life you're in, in whatever dimension of life you're, you're looking at and going, God is silent in this area, particularly. 
as we wait in silence, it looks like looking to God for help, no matter what. And again, I, I reference you to the whole series on waiting on God because there's a tendency in us to grow impatient. We become impulsive and do silly things because God didn't act or speak fast enough. So just like King Saul, I'm going to go find a witch at Endor to give me a message. And even then, it's not going to be helpful. It's going to plunge me into deeper darkness. Sometimes we do that to ourselves. So he's talking about how he relies on the steadfast love of God to hold him up. There's a practical word for some of you. And that might, that might be too vague sometimes when we say things like this. Oh, let the love of God hold you up. I think God will clarify to you what that looks like for you in your own life. He can give you a bunch of practical ways to do that. But Psalm chapter 62, we got to keep moving. Verse 5, again, waiting in silence. I'm just looking at different examples in Scripture of people who were waiting in silence, waiting for God. And what did they do? Well, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. My hope is from him. The psalmist here has placed his hope, which is a resource you choose to invest into things. He's taking his hope and he's investing it into God and God's character and God's word and God's promises, right? And God's ability and God's strength. And he's invested it into God. I wait for you alone, alone. So where God is not just another option, he is my only hope, right? He only, twice, emphasis is on the exclusivity of God here. He is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I will not be shaken. What confidence. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock and my refuge is God. So he makes absolute statements. God is, God is. And then he says, based on that, here's what I'll do. Trust in him at all times, people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. So some practical advice, some wisdom for you as you wait in silence. Pour out your heart before him. Trust him at all times. Not when it's easy only. Not only when it's hard and I need a reason. But in every season, look to him as your trust and your refuge. Because even if you don't treat him as your refuge, he remains your refuge. Right? He doesn't change based on how I treat him. He is who he always is, but will I take him at his word and rely on him as such? Those of lowest state are but a breath. They blow away. Those of highest state, they're a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Emphasis on how quickly they fade and blow away. But put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. So when God is silent, instead of scheming, Instead of, and I'm all for planning, I'm all for preparing, I'm all for calculating and, and being faithful and running the numbers and, and looking at the analytics, I'm all for that. But when you begin placing the trust that should be in God into other things that actually produce sinful tendencies and amplify that within you and, and lead you to do things that dishonor God, you're no longer trusting in Him. You're setting your vain Hopes on things that are contrary to God and his word. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. We'll talk about that when we go through finances this year. Once God has spoken, twice I've heard this, power belongs to God. But do you live like that? Do you trust him as such? Do you actually claim that promise? And to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. At least twice I've seen the steadfast love of God be the focal point of this passage. Steadfast. God is 
not just a fortress in the sense that he defends and protects and vindicates, but his love is in and of itself like a shield for us. So it's not just this general picture of God, just kind of a fortress. I run to him and he closes the door. No one can get me. His love that I choose to lean on, that I choose to meditate on, that I choose to delight in, that love of God becomes a kind of plate halo two and three. It becomes a bubble shield for me, right? In the midst of warfare and everything that I'm facing. For you will render to a man according to his work. It's interesting how this passage seemed to start with vindication and God righteously stepping in and it ends with that same idea, right? And what's sandwiched in between is lean on, trust in, rely on the love of God, build your life on the love of God, right? Let me take you to Lamentations 3. The weeping prophet, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. This is a general statement. I'm just going to unpack this real quick. This is always true in all, just throughout eternity. God is good. But the goodness of God flowing into a person's life in terms of experientially enjoying and delighting in God, favoring him, yet that comes to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. So while silence is ringing throughout your life or in different areas of your life and in your relationships, in your career, and next steps for your family, and where to move, and why are things crumbling, and God, where's the answer? As you're waiting in silence, here's a practical step. Seek God. Continually seek Him. That shouldn't change based on how loud or how quiet God is in my life. I should continue to seek Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. What do you mean it's good to wait? No, it's not. Of course it is. It's very rewarding. The longer you wait for something, I know we hate waiting, but the longer you wait, the more rewarding it is to get to the end of that thing. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Wow. What's the yoke he's bearing? Waiting in silence for God to act and bring salvation, which seems to be the the consistent way of understanding God being silent is that salvation, in terms of experientially, has not come for his people. We're waiting. I mean, we are in the in-between, aren't we? We're waiting for God to come back, bring new creation and all that. It would be wonderful. But we're waiting, aren't we? Verse 28, let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Yikes. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. Reminiscent of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, huh? He talks about give him the other cheek. Go an extra mile. Give him your cloak too. So there's this idea of sitting in silence, the weeping prophet, specifically weeping over the state of Jerusalem and all that, and Israel, both northern and southern kingdoms. While he's kind of lamenting that, there is truth and wisdom for us to glean within this, which is that you and I will have our own periods. Maybe it's not the result of our sin, but these periods and seasons of silence. It seems though God is not as loud as he was. He's not speaking into this. Like, he's telling me all these other things. Like, be patient. Keep loving me. It's like, I love it. But you're not telling me what to do next. You're not telling me what to do with this opportunity. You're not telling me which of these three options to take. You're not telling me if she's someone I should pursue. There's, you're very unclear in those areas. Could you speak up a bit? Yeah, in those moments, continue seeking him. If you let up, you, you might just get an answer along the way. But I, I feel like it's 
There's something to be said about the more I seek God along the way, not just it's more rewarding at the end, but there seems to be more along the way that I that is added to me as I wait for him. Exodus 14, 14. Uh, Moses tells the people of Israel, standing at the Red Sea, freaking out, going, we should have just gone back there. We told you to leave us alone. Moses goes, guys, shut up. The Lord is going to fight for you. Do you know what you have to do? Here's your job. Here's your job. Shh. Be silent. Sometimes when I think of Job, right, when his friends first come in and he's really, I mean, you can't imagine. (laughs) Maybe you can. I can't. I can't imagine the kind of distress, agony, heartache, pain, devastation that he's experiencing. His friends come in and they just sit. Just sit in silence. Sometimes that is one of the best things you can do, whether that be in your own period of silence where God is not answering. I know people are saying, every time you open the word of God, brother, he's speaking. I'm not saying in that sense. God is, of course, always speaking. I'm talking about when you're asking for clarity or direction in a specific area, where you're asking for an answer, you're, you're making a prayer request. You're good. Lord, would you please? And he hasn't answered. He hasn't said yes. He hasn't said no. As you're waiting for God to act. Sometimes being silent is a good thing to do. Maybe that is your only job. Seek him. Seek him in his word. Seek him in prayer. And just meditate. Sit quietly. Let him encourage you by his spirit. I could take you to Amos chapter 8. Amos chapter 8 essentially makes the point that God's silence is judgment against the people for their sin. And I'm never going to jump to this and go, that's why God's quiet, guys, because you're in sin. But that is a reality. That is a possibility. Is that sometimes the silence in an area of life is due to personal, habitual, unrepentant, however you qualify it, sin, living in sin. Your walk is off. It's not aligned with God's will and his word for your life. So yeah, there are consequences for us missing the mark with our actions in life. There are consequences for doing the wrong thing and dishonoring God with our actions, our mouth, our our, our life. There are consequences. One of those consequences in Amos chapter 8 is a national consequence. He talks about how there's going to be a famine of the word of God. Um, He says, I'm going to send a famine on the land. Not, Not bread or water, but of hearing the word of God. And you can read the context. It's pretty clear, pretty clear, that there is such a category as sometimes silence is the product of sin. Not always not even often, just sometimes that's the case. So the question becomes, what do we do with God's silence in our life? Well, back to the other question I asked earlier, what do we most often mean when we say God is silent? What we typically mean is, well, God is not giving me an answer. He's not doing something I asked him to do. He's not telling me something I need. He seems like he's got his hands in his pockets and he's He's talking to me about other things like the fruits of the spirit and who Jesus is and the narrative of scripture, but it's not speaking directly to my situation. What do we do with the silence of God? Here's some ideas before we jump into that question. Whoop, I'm going to flip it back again. I'm going to tackle the question I asked before this. I'm jumping all around. You guys just deal with it. 
What do we do as we wait for God to respond? Here are some ideas as to why God is silent sometimes in Scripture. I'll just give you, I'm, I want you guys to do homework. Sometimes I, as a teacher, I just want to um, tell you everything, <laughs> tell you what things mean, break it down for you. I want, I, I'm by, by nature a teacher. I want you to have understanding because you came in contact with me. I want things to be clearer and more simple. But sometimes a good teacher actually leaves um, people um, doing homework on their own and exploring for themselves. And I'll set you on an adventure. You go explore. So go read Matthew chapter 13. It seems as though, and this might seem unrelated to you, but the parable of the sower, it talks about how Jesus actually allows for people to decide what condition they're in when they encounter the word of God, whether they're receptive or partially receptive. And so Jesus actually, and this seems to be consistent with the Bereans and Acts, is that um, not just Jesus, but God will make people search for understanding. I mean, wow, what a concept that God would um, make it so that certain things we get are dependent on the effort that we put forth. Instead of chalking everything up to, well, God's sovereign, he'll bring it to if he wants to. isn't Isn't this a partnership? Isn't there a God can, but he still says, I want you to do a part, and then that's how you'll get here, even though I could just bring you here. I want you to partner with me and actually put some effort forth and be faithful. We see this with the Bereans in Acts. They hear the gospel, and it says they search the scriptures to see if these things are so. Matthew 13, you know, Matthew chapter 7, there's an invitation to ask, to seek, to knock. So no matter what, as we're going, why God, what do I do? Seek. Every period of silence However you're qualifying that, if, even if you're wrong, even if you're, you're misinformed and it, you're completely wrong, whatever you're saying is God being silent in an area of my life or a season of my life, that's an invitation to draw close and seek for God more. The only people in, in Matthew and Luke's gospel talking about Christmas and Jesus coming, the only people who know about the arrival of the Savior, possibly with the exception of the shepherds, are people who have been seeking. Simeon, Anna, wise men, maybe even the shepherds. The text doesn't say they weren't seeking. The text just says they're out there in the fields watching their flocks, the angel come, and maybe because those shepherds were actually seeking for him. We don't know. But the people who get to go and see Jesus, whether he's two, whether he's newborn, they see him because they've been seeking. They took the promises, they took the prophecies, they took the Torah, they took the writings, they took the scriptures, and they said, we have a sense that he's near. Uh, read, read Matthew and Luke's gospel, specifically about the arrival of Jesus. God invites us to, to seek, to search for understanding, to knock, to ask, Lord, would you? And prayer, as we'll jump into the series next week, talking about prayer. Prayer is God's sovereign methodology by which he's chosen to cause certain things to happen in our lives. There's a cause and effect relationship between God's hand and our prayers. Not everything is that, but some things are that. Will you accept the invitation? Will you step up to the plate? Um, you know, when I say God is inviting us to draw near, no matter what, if I view us a period of silence, however I look at that, as well, I guess I'll just stop reading my Bible and going to church and being around believers and stop praying and stop meditating and stop being holy. If that's my response, then it might not even do me good if God gave me the answer or gave me what I'm asking for because I wouldn't have 
the, I don't know, the framework, the maturity, the faith to even handle that or know what to do with it. Hey, real quick, don't forget to head to AboveReproachMinistry.com to check out all of our free resources, all of our Bible study courses, devotional studies, Bible study workshops, Bible study worksheets, all of my sermon notes, and more. And while you're there, grab a copy of my book, Fruitful, or snag some church merch. You can also find all these links in the video description below. I'm also very excited to announce Above Reproach Ministry Discussion Groups, or ARM Discussion Groups for short. Head to the website if you'd like to see what groups are available near you, or if you'd like to start one in your area, feel free to email me. The first season of video Video teachings have been compiled into a group study for you and other believers to dive into together. And in the months to come, I hope to have all nine seasons of these video teachings compiled into group studies for y'all to dive into together. We hope this encourages you to meet and grow with other believers to dive into the scriptures as the body of Christ. Well, that is all I have for you. Let's jump back into the message. Sometimes the silence of God, or even I'll say it like this, the duration of the silence. Maybe God has has, has an intended period for silence and it ends up going longer because that's a direct result of our decision not to seek him not to accept his invitation to draw near and know him and spend time with him and search the scriptures and love him and walk in obedience and be around his people and do what he i know he's told me to do maybe just maybe the duration of the silence throughout our lives at times is actually the result of our decision not to actually seek for God in that moment or in that season. I'll take you to a passage which doesn't necessarily make the point I'm making because it's more of a holistic reading of Scripture that gives you that understanding. But Proverbs 25.2, it says, It is the glory of God to conceal things. Isn't it? But the glory of kings is to search them out. You see that? Why does God talk in riddles sometimes and rather than face-to-face and mouth-to-mouth? Why in metaphors? Why in poetic imagery? Why, why in parables? Right, why? Like he tells uh, Mo, uh, Miriam and Aaron. I always mix it up. Is it Numbers or Deuteronomy? But God's defending Moses. Hey, vindication. He's defending Moses. And he goes, look, I talk to prophets in dream, in riddles, um, you know, in vision, but with Moses, face to face. So why is it that God conceals things in, in parables and, and the, the hyperbolic language? And oh, is this a metaphor? Because it's the glory of God. And I believe this also does refer to the way Scripture is formatted for us to find understanding and find wisdom. But just referring to anything, it's the glory of God to conceal things. And it becomes our glory, not just the glory of kings, but it becomes our glory to search those things out. Not because we get the credit for finding it, but because God gets the credit for bringing us there, for showing us how, for packing it up neatly, for for being sovereign over the whole process of digging and understanding. And there's something about, wow, that was worth it. That was rewarding to dig for what God concealed. And potentially... As you evaluate your own life and go, I'm in a period of silence, or I feel like God's not talking as much, or he's not telling me what to do with this. Possibly, is it an invitation for you to search out what God has concealed? And you go, why would God do that? Because he gets glory? Because your relationship with His him is strengthened? Because your faith is strengthened? Because that promotes sanctification and love for God? Because that promotes you delighting in him and clinging to him more? 
because he's glorified in you, realizing that this is a partnership and, and you hide and, and conceal and I search out. And there's also other areas in my life where God says, it's a partnership. I'm not going to do everything. Come and do your part. Yeah, there's something wonderful about that. So here are some ideas about what to do with the silence of God. However you qualify that, I'm going to say that every time because I don't want to make these general vague statements in absolutes. I just want you to think about this, okay? When it comes to silence, what do we do? Number one, take faithful action. Instead of focusing on what you don't know and what God hasn't done and what God hasn't clarified, right? Instead of living in the unknown, why don't you do what he's already revealed to you to do? There's a lot you know to do. There's a lot I know to do. And sometimes we're crippled and we become complacent because I'm obsessing over what I don't know and what God has not revealed yet. For instance, let's take 1 Samuel 14. I'm going to give you two examples in scripture of two characters who have just their story, their, the way they approach these situations has uh, just greatly impacted the way I relate to these situations in my life. And I hope you'll get the wisdom out of this that I did. First one is Jonathan, King Saul's son. They're sitting at a standstill with the war, uh, in the war with the Philistines. Jonathan's looking at the Philistine stronghold on the other side, and he's looking at his young man who carried his armor, and he goes, hey, I'm bored. Let's go over to the garrison. And you guys, if you've stuck around, you know I like to reference this story a lot. But there's something new about it that I want to link to Genesis 24. And he goes, it may be that the Lord will work for us. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. What does Jonathan know? God doesn't need anything to do anything. He can do anything he wants because he's the creator of the universe. But, right, what Jonathan does not know is whether or not God is going to give them specifically this Philistine stronghold. So his armor bearer looks at him and goes, let's do it. Do all that's in your heart. Crazy. Do as you wish. I'm with you, heart and soul my guy. Then Jonathan said, behold, let's cross over to the men. So Jonathan has a desire. Jonathan has knowledge of God. Jonathan has someone to go with him. What does Jonathan not have? Clear direction from God about this specific situation. How does he get that? How does he know what to do? Because you can say God can do that doesn't mean he's going to do that for you. God can do that. Doesn't mean he's going to do that in this time, in this season for that person or that group. So how do I know God will do that? Well, he doesn't know. What he does instead, he doesn't hear directly from God. He doesn't get a message from God. In fact, the whole reason I bring this up is because God is silent on the matter of this situation. There's no statements about God said or God directed. Not to say God's hand isn't over this. Don't mistake what I'm saying. But Jonathan takes his knowledge of God into his own hands, and he makes a faithful, biblical, thoughtful decision about what to do with that information in the situation that he's in. Or what to do with that information in the situation that he's in. That's what I said. And he decides here that a sign will help him direct, uh, be directed according to God's will. In other words, he decides a specific sign that he says will help him know if God is with him or not. And he says, look, let's go to the Philistines. If they say wait, then we'll stand in our place and we won't go up to them. But if they say come to us, then we'll go up because the Lord has given 
them into our hand. This will be the sign to us. Now, I'm sure somewhere in Torah, somewhere in the Old Testament before this event takes place, you can find the the reasoning, like the passages of Scripture that influenced Jonathan's reasoning, that influenced Jonathan in this decision. Like, how did he know this sign? Why, why this specific sign? Why they saying this specific thing? There's something probably in Scripture that would give you, help you make sense of that. Nothing I've come across. But the fact of the matter is, here's a sign Jonathan decides on his own. Doesn't say God gives him an idea. Doesn't say God gives him a message. Not saying God is not overseeing that. But there's no clear statements from God Here's what to do, Jonathan. So Jonathan goes, ah, I know what God can do. I know you're with me. I know he doesn't need anything, but I'm not sure if he wants to do that for us. So let's figure that out. How, Jonathan? Well, let's go to the Philistines. If they say this, he's not with us. If they say this, he is with us. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistines. The Philistines said, look, Hebrews, come up here. And Jonathan goes, he's with us. Did God ever say that in the text? No. How did Jonathan decide that? I don't think this is presumptive. I don't think this is arrogant. I don't think this is prideful. I don't think this is um, uh, testing the Lord. However you might twist this in a negative way. I don't think that's what's happening. I actually think Jonathan here is to be applauded. I think this is admirable. Good on Jonathan for knowing what God can do. But that in between of what he will and what he can do, he kind of fills that in with a sign and trusts God He's not going, God will give. He's saying, I'm trusting God to work through this condition and this sign that I'm surrendering up to God. And God does. God honors that. So what can we do in silence? Take faithful action. What does that mean? Do what is consistent with God and his word. What if I don't know what to do? You know enough about what you should be doing to spend a hundred lifetimes following God. You don't need to know as much as you think. I, I need to know. I need to know what's next. I need to know what this is going to look like. I need to know if my kids should. As much as you think you need to know, that doesn't affect the core purpose of you existing here on earth, which is just to image God, know him, love him, love people. You can do that even if God never gives you an answer or speaks into whatever situation you need him to. Well, I need God. No, you know exactly what he wants you to do while you're waiting. Even if he says no, it doesn't change. Even if he says yes, it doesn't change. Whether he does it or not, you know enough about what scripture says God desires of his people. So take faithful action and let God direct that. There's something about God will often take our faithfulness in response to his character and word, and then he'll produce out of that almost clarity and direction on the other areas of our lives that we thought were unrelated. Genesis 24, 6. This really stuck out to me a couple weeks ago. Really hit me. I've read this story a bunch of times. A bunch. And I never saw this. Never. Genesis 24. Abraham tells his servant, I don't want Isaac to marry foreign women. Go back to my father's land, technically my homeland, and go find a wife for my son there from my father's family. Abraham's servant sets out on a journey to find a wife for the next patriarch, Isaac. And Abraham says, make sure you don't take my son back there. Um, because if Isaac goes back there, wouldn't be good. 
the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, um, he will send his angel before you. What does Abraham know? Number one, Abraham knows God gave him a promise. And the promise is trifold, quadfold. There's so many dimensions to the promise. But also he knows God will send his angel before you. Essentially what Abraham says is, as you do what I tell you, God will direct your steps. It sounds like Psalm 119, doesn't it? But he goes, look, if the woman doesn't want to come back, you're, you don't have to do it. You're good, my guy. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham. They made a, you know, an oath. Then the servant took 10 of his master's camels. I'm just going to skim through this. And then he makes his way back to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, uh, that being Abraham's, I forget if it's his father or his brother, either way, his family. And he made the camels kneel down outside the well, outside the city by the well of water at the time of eating. You'll be surprised how many of these, like, almost like copy-pasted interactions take place at a well. Um, That time when women go out to draw water. So here's what the servant knows. Abraham told me, God's going to send his angel before me, which you might think notes favor and success. Besides that, within success is direction and clarity. The servant can't go back. That was a success unless he knows what to do here and who to bring back to Isaac, right? So within the idea of success is clarity and direction. He needs that. He knows Abraham believes that God will give him that. He knows that he has to go to Mesopotamia to find a wife for Isaac, Right, there, there are some things he knows that God made a promise to his, 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 his master, Abraham. But he doesn't know who, he doesn't know how, he doesn't know what this is going to look like. So here's what he says. Watch. Oh, Lord. I believe the servant strategically places him outside himself and his caravan outside the city by the well because he knows women go out there to draw water. I don't believe this is a coincidence. Maybe that's reading into the text, but he says, Oh, Lord, God of my master. Please grant me success today. Show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Look, and up to this point, what has God not done? He has not spoken. He's not given a message. He's not given directions. He's not given clarity on what's next. You might say, just like Jonathan had that micro period of silence, God isn't telling us what to do, so let's take action. You're going to see the servant does the same thing here. God ain't speaking. I know you're the God of my... Master Abraham, I know you're going to show steadfast love to him. Please do that. Look, I'm standing by the spring of water. Women are coming out to draw water. Okay, he knows that. God, this is what he says, let the young woman to whom I say, please let down your jar that Emma have a drink. And who says, drink and I'll water your camels. Let her be the one you've appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I'll know that you've shown steadfast love to my master. What does the servant do? He does what Jonathan does. I don't know what to do here. I have a general promise, a general knowledge of God from Abraham about what he will do and who he is. But here, in this moment of time, I don't know what to do. So, I'm going to decide a condition for you to meet God. Would you honor that and show steadfast love to Abraham? And God honors it. God honors it. Is this... Is this giving you a blueprint for how to live your life every day and make every decision? No. What I think we have here, at least, is a category of how to engage certain situations uh, that are filled with uncertainty and unclarity and confusion. What do we do? There is a category of, well, there have been people 
who go, if you will, then I'll know you'll. But if you don't, God, then I know you won't. And here he goes, if a woman comes out and I say, please give me a drink, please, sir. Please, ma'am. And she goes, "Uh, more than that, I'll water your camels. Whoa, extra mile. Then I'll know that's the one you've appointed for Isaac. Please show steadfast love to my master God. Before he finished speaking. Oh, man. Think about that. Before he finished his prayer. Rebecca, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, which I believe, again, is Abraham's brother. There you go. Abraham's brother came out with her water jar on her shoulder. Guess who ends up being Isaac's wife? Rebecca. Rebecca. And he only came to that conclusion because he obeyed his master. He had a general knowledge of who the God of Abraham was and what he promised and what he would do. And he trusted that God would direct. So he put a condition on and said, if you would, God honors that. And he goes, he doesn't go, well, it's probably just a coincidence. I mean, I'm not going to. And the woman ends up going, I'll water your camels too. Bring them over here. He goes, no way. No way. Take faithful action. Do what you know to do instead of being crippled by what you don't know about what you should be doing. Here's also what I recommend. And I'll just, I don't have to read this story because we're all familiar with the Garden of Gethsemane scene. Well, if you're new to the Bible, you're probably not. So I don't want to make that statement. But I will say this. Jesus is about to be arrested and then crucified uh, on the night of his arrest. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane with his boys praying three times. Jesus goes about a stone's throw from his three boys and he prays. And here's what he prays. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He goes back. Boys are sleeping. Goes, come on. Guys, let's pray. Goes back, prays again. Essentially the same exact thing. Finds his boys again, sleeping. Comes back and prays again. Three times he prays the same thing. What we don't see is God, the Father, speaking, giving a message, telling Jesus what to do in this this specific scenario. You ever thought about that? The silence of God often speaks volumes. Hmm? Jesus knew what to do and knew what it looked like moving forward and had certainty about that even more because of what his father didn't say. So rather than Jesus filling in the gaps of God's silence with his own preference, now of course Jesus has the upper hand knowing things we typically don't, understanding the scriptures and the way he fulfills prophecy and what his mission is, he's on another level. But what we don't see Jesus do And what we see many biblical characters do is Jesus doesn't fill in the gaps of his father's silence with his own preference. He goes, well, if you're quiet, then that must mean what I want is what you want. What he does is he understands that no message that is recorded here in Matthew or Mark's gospel, no message explicitly from God, clearly from the father, means keep moving forward. Interesting. So what Jesus does is he submits to and he trusts in the will of God. He trusts his father. He relies on his father. He believes his father will direct his steps. And if his father didn't say anything new, then it's the same. The mission has not changed. 
Hmm. I wonder how often God's silence in our lives. And and I know y'all want like an algorithm. You want like a chart to tell me, well, when is God's silence actually speaking volumes to me to keep moving forward? I couldn't tell you. I think that's the whole point of God's silence is there's no formula to it. There's no way to calculate. There's no way to, well, based on this track record, there's, there's, there's nothing like that. What there is is general wisdom in scripture. What there is is examples of people who navigated the same thing you're going through. What there is is God and his character and his word and, and his ways. It clearly revealed in the word of God. What we have is that. And is that enough? Yeah, at times it is. But there is a category at least of God's silence being an indication to keep moving forward. And guess what? Let him direct your steps, but submit to his will along the way. What we see in Acts 15, 28 is Peter and the apostles, they're trying to figure out what to do with the Gentiles, right? And what's interesting is God is not speaking into the situation and telling them what to do. He's not. You don't see, what you see is after they convene, after they have a little bit of a debate and even a little bit of an argument, the apostles conclude, verse 28, it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you Gentiles no greater burden than these requirements. Then you have verse 29. Those are the requirements. How did they conclude that? Did God tell them, guys, it's not that hard. Break out a piece of parchment. I'll have you write it down. Just like Moses. God didn't do that. What God allows is his people, the apostles, to squirm a bit, to wrestle a bit, to discuss even at heat, a little bit of a heated discussion during that time to discuss it amongst each other. Essentially, Peter, Paul are getting godly counsel by the Spirit of God from the apostles as they talk through these things. And I love that. When you're waiting in silence, thank you, Pack Attack, whatever, I encourage you to get godly counsel from trusted believers so that you can come to a decision prayerfully together. And I think along the way throughout this series, I've already explained why God involves people when it comes to him speaking to you. Why God brings in these different, I guess, methods of communicating because God is not boxed in like that. And I've made that very clear from the beginning of the series. So get godly counsel. Don't make assumptions and go, well, God hasn't spoken, so he must not care about this, or, or he must be letting us decide. Possibly... But that doesn't mean assume and presume upon the silence. What that means is, God, you're not saying anything. So like Jonathan, like Abraham's servant, like probably other characters who didn't know what you wanted, they stepped forward and you either shut the door or you left it open. That's what I'm doing. You're quiet here. And I think it's intentional so I can draw near and ask for understanding and my faith is strengthened and you're glorified. But I am laying this at your feet. I trust your will be done. So help me navigate. As I take a step forward, sometimes people think silence means don't move. I think at the Red Sea it did. Don't move. Don't say a thing. God's about to act. But not always. There are are all these different categories. And I think we just want to take our situations in life and go, which situation is this? Just tell me which one to parallel this to. I don't think it's that neat and clean and that black and white at times. It is very... uh, at times, gray. At times, like, what's the right thing to do? I'll just go to Proverbs. General wisdom might help you. I'm not going to give you a complete, absolute sure answer to what you're going through. But what I recommend is at least consider these scenarios. God is your silence, an indication I should take faithful action and keep doing what I'm doing. Absolutely. 
You'll always be doing that. God, in this situation, is your silence uh, uh, an indication that I should move forward and do what I sense is the right thing and you shut it down or you open it? I'm going to do that. God, is your silence an indication that I actually should move forward and you're not opposed to what I'm doing? God, is your silence an indication I should get godly counsel from other people? I would just like consider all these things. Peter in Acts chapter 10 has a vision several times. He does not know what it means. Daniel has trying to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He doesn't know what it means until he seeks and God answers. Or Daniel has dreams himself. He doesn't know what it means until he asks an angel of the Lord. And Peter finally knows what the vision means in Acts 10 when he goes to Cornelius and he goes, that's why he gave me that vision. Oh my gosh. Because God was quiet there. Lord, what does the vision mean? Peter's contemplating it. He's perplexed is what the language says. The Spirit of God doesn't say, hey, bozo, it's not that hard. The Spirit of God says, two men are knocking at your door. Go with them. What? Aren't you going to tell me what this message means? When you do what I tell you to do, and you go forward with these men, clarity will come. Is that sometimes what happens in our life? Yes. You want clarity now, right? God, but you need to tell me, am I supposed to move with my family or not to Texas? And God's going, go to church and serve faithfully. Love those children that have been entrusted to you. Disciple your wife. What does that have to do with my decision and you not being speaking into it? Clarity will come along the way. I would say do what God has told you to do. Even if it's completely different and it seems unrelated to the areas of your life where you're unclear on and you're asking God what to do, trust that God will bring clarity and answer. And if he doesn't, trust him. I'm saying that like, but Job, for example, for 38 chapters, okay? Think about that. That's the equivalent of a long time. 38 chapters. He's waiting for understanding in his situation. Isn't he? He just lost everything. And what God left isn't exactly what Job wanted to be kept around. And Job's wrestling through that. He gets friends, talk through things, going, why is God allowing this? What is happening? Is it because of me? His friends go, maybe. Maybe you're not as righteous. You know, they're wrestling for 38 chapters. Job has no idea what's happening. No understanding, no clarity, no message. God is silent. And then God steps in in chapter 38 through 40. And he gives Job, essentially, his resume. (laughs) And goes, Job, all the things I do on a moment-to-moment basis... You couldn't do one of them in a lifetime. The, the story ends with Job not knowing why, not understanding why, just that God brought back some stuff and, and things seemed to look good for his future and that's it. You can talk about the whole sacrifice and the old pagans be a part of that and, and picture of the Gentiles and maybe Jesus in this, but Job does not get clarity on why. Doesn't get under, God doesn't tell him why. Is it possible that that story is supposed to encourage us that, yeah, what you're looking for sometimes for God to do 
or for God to tell you, he ain't going to tell you or give you this side of heaven. I think Job, the whole book of Job gives us uh, a case study on how to deal with uncertainty and confusing situations. And God, why are you quiet? They, the Job and his friends, they use their mind. They think, they reason, they consider the character of God and the way things are. But some things are just beyond us. And God does not always explain his reasoning. He doesn't have to. He's not obligated to. He doesn't always tell you why or what or answer your prayer. And that's okay. 2 Kings 4.27 is an example of this. Now, of course, Elisha will end up finding out what happened. But a woman that he, the Shunammite, who ends up having a baby, she was barren, God blesses her. She has a baby. Well, that boy grew up and then he died. So she comes running to find Elisha, right? And he goes, uh, is everything okay? And she goes, everything's okay. And when she came to the mountain, or rather, uh, run at once to meet her. She's been, it's all with well, uh, man of God. He's, she's talking to Gehazi, Elisha's servant. Verse 27, she comes to Elisha. She comes to the mountain to the man of God. She hangs onto his feet. And Gehazi, Elisha's servant, comes to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone. She's in bitter distress. Now watch. If there's anyone that like is sensitive to the voice of God and has like this super cool relationship with God, it's Elisha. He goes, Leave her alone. God has hidden it from me. He hasn't told me. Why? Text never says. Over and over, God shares some pretty cool messages with Elisha. I mean, I, from what I remember, Elisha ends up being the guy. Yeah, it is Elisha. Who ends up, God tells him all the plans of the enemy king of Syria. So that every time the king of Syria tries to come against Israel, Elisha's like, they're coming in from the back. How do you know God told me? That's Elisha. And now in this situation, God has hidden for some reason what's happening with this woman. Just say, her, her son died. Well, she's about to tell him. Listen, he, God allows the woman to explain the situation. Isn't that interesting? God allows the woman to deliver the news rather than him doing it. Why? Text never says. You just have these moments, or, or Jesus being silent at the cross, Matthew 26, 63. He was silent. His accusers, oh, if you could do that, come on. He remains silent. Why? Because he trusted his father. I think he's imitating, at times, what the father does to people, but Jesus is doing it to the crowds. He doesn't give an answer. Do you know who I am? He's quiet. So what does God's silence mean? How should we in our life interpret that silence? What I want to say is this. I don't believe that is as important. Understanding the, the why of the silence, the reason for God not sp- That is not as important as what we should do with the silence. Sometimes we obsess over figuring out God's reasoning. Well, why? Maybe it's because I... Maybe it's because I went to her house. Maybe I shouldn't have watched that movie. And we end up overlooking the purpose of the silence, which is, hey, there's something for you to be doing while you're looking at a a season or a period of silence. There's something you should be doing. And if you're trying to figure out the reason behind God's silence, 
disrupts your faithfulness and obedience or something wrong. A couple passages just to explain what I mean. In John chapter 9, verse 3, what we are told is a man is born blind. In this sense, God did not act for, I believe he's like 30 or 40 years old, okay? For his whole life, God has not answered Do you think the man ever asked, why was I born blind? What did I do? What did my parents do? Why did this happen to me? What is the purpose of, what is happening? God, are you going to come through or not? Are you going to heal me? You can. You can. You've done it before. Jesus is doing it all around the towns right now. He ain't coming to me. Do you think that ever was in the heart of this man, wondering, confused, being set down to be healed? i Never, God never answered. So you could say there's there's somewhat of a silence on the part of God to not act. And what does Jesus do? He walks by and the disciples go, Hey, what do you he do? He's obviously blind because of someone's moral failure. Did he sin or his parents? Jesus goes, Neither. Actually, and this must have been liberating for the man. Now you go, well, he had a general sense in Torah that God works all things and all. Everything is in his hands. He's glorified in it. But for it to come from the mouth of Jesus, this ultimate rabbi walking around just, I mean, doing awesome things. For Jesus to say, this man is blind, was born blind, so the works of God might be displayed in him. That must have been like a, a burden lifted off his shoulder partially. For this man to go, maybe he didn't overhear it. Maybe I'm reading the text. But the answer comes and God acts. After how many years? We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. And then he heals the blind man. Why those many years of God not acting, which is equated to a kind of silence. So God is glorified. So at least, at least The bare minimum of silence is that there's potential, there's our word for the year, there's potential for God to be glorified in the silence. Not just through what is produced, not just through how you respond, not just about how God gets to act and his name is made known, but all of these other different things. John 11 is another example of Jesus being silent, right? And you go, no, watch. Mary and Martha had a brother named Lazarus, and he was sick. He was approaching death. If no one healed him, if the sickness, he was going to die. So they send messengers to Jesus and go, Lord, he whom you love is ill. You think they're appealing to Jesus' compassionate side by saying that? They then go, Lazarus is dying. They go, you know, your friend that you love, he's sick. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. What did John 9 say two chapters ago? This man isn't born blind because of his sin or his parents' sin. It's not an issue of moral failure. It's so the works of God, the glory of God can be seen through him. Same with this situation. He goes, it's for the glory of God. So the Son of Man, the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now watch. Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, what did he do? He stayed two days longer in the place where he was, and he let Lazarus die. 
Now we go, that's rough, but we don't quite understand how devastating that would be for two sisters who trust Jesus, look to him, seem to understand who he is, know that he loves them and and he has the power to heal, for him to send the messengers back with at least nothing more than this message. Because at at least they caught this, this illness doesn't lead to death. And they were probably like, yes! But then Lazarus dies. Between the time the messengers arrived and Jesus came, there is a deafening silence that probably left them. We see the text after this. They are devastated. You could have healed him. If you were here, he wouldn't have died. You see this distress in their in the way they approach Jesus and what they say. And what Jesus does is he says it's for the glory of God. What he doesn't do is tell them exactly what's about to take place. There is a kind of silence. Jesus does not act the way the sisters wanted him to, the way they pleaded with him to, the way they sent messengers to ask him to do, that he didn't do that. So in that sense, that is a kind of silence they had to endure. Probably waiting for the last minute. Lazarus is in his last moments. Jesus is coming in. Any minute that door's getting crushed down or nicely opened. And in will walk rabbi. He doesn't do that. What happens is something better, which is that he's raised to life. Did they know that? No. Did Jesus tell them that? No. Did God tell them that? No. Why? Hmm. You could reason all you want and look at the text. I don't believe there's any clear reason except that what he is going to do is better. And that's not necessarily a reason why he doesn't share. He could have told them, what I'm about to do is better. Okay, we'll wait. But there's something about the surprise, the shock, the new revelation of who Jesus really is that really blows them away. They didn't anticipate something about that that comes through the period of silence. And I will say this, sometimes silence on the part of God We're in a season of our life. It is, as we see in 1 Samuel 28, verse 6 and 15, Saul, King Saul is looking for God. He doesn't answer by Urim. He doesn't answer by visions. He doesn't answer by prophets. Samuel died. Sometimes silence is caused by our disobedience and our decision to live in sin. Sometimes the silence is the result of our distractedness. I'm just simply missing the voice of God and where he's actually trying to speak to me in my life. Sometimes it's caused by doubt. Sometimes it's caused by a decision to not lean into God and seek for the more he has for me. Sometimes like Matthew chapter 13 and Isaiah 44 says, the silence is actually due to my own lack of reception to God's will and his word for my life. And there's probably a bunch of other reasons we could go through that I haven't discovered. We don't have to exhaustively list these things out, but I want to say this. There's at least a few for you to consider. But we're so quick to assume something's wrong, God's quiet, he didn't answer, he didn't do, he didn't give clarity, he didn't wisdom, I'm the issue. Possibly? But is that the first thing you should consider? I think we should be self-reflective. I think we should, what's wrong in my life? Possibly. I'll repent, I'll turn, I'll change. But that should, I don't think that should be my first response. I should actually go down the list and go, well, it could be any of these things. I'm not going to jump the gun and assume it's one of these things. I'm going to consider that Any of these things are likely. Maybe I'm distracted. Maybe I'm doubting. Maybe I'm not leaning into God as much as he's called me to and I'm not receiving the invitation to seek him. Maybe I'm just not receptive to what he wants to do in my life. 
Maybe there's actually sin in my life inhibiting me from hearing his voice. And he's kind of said, until you do what I said, I'm not going to say anything more. But are you ready to hear his voice? That's the question. That's how we're going to end this series. Are you ready? Are you open? Are you receptive to the voice of God in your life? With all the different ways we've discussed throughout this series of how God speaks, dreams, visions, people, his word, his son, all these different things. Are you open? Because all these other things, it literally doesn't matter if you and I, like Matthew 13 says, if we don't have a heart, a soil that is receptive to the word of God, it doesn't matter. Isaiah 44, 18 talks about how they don't know, they shut their eyes, they cannot see, they cannot understand. Matthew 13 jumps off that passage. 1 Samuel 3, we have Samuel the prophet learning how to recognize and discern the voice of God and become familiar. This young boy going, I think that's Eli? Nope. Eli? Nope. It's God. God? Yep. Samuel hears God's voice. Are you receptive? I'm going to give you some homework to end this series. More homework. Yep, deal with it. Go read 1 Samuel 3. Go read 1 Samuel 3. Go read Matthew 13. Go read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2. Go read Hebrews 5 verse 11. And go read John 16 verse 12. When you read those passages, and I don't have time to do it, Like I said, I'm learning that as a teacher, I don't need to exhaust myself and explain everything in detail. There has to be room for you guys to wrestle, explore, and discover things on your own journey of seeking God for yourself. I can't be that to you. I don't want you to look to me as such. I'll explain the word of God. I'll teach as accurately as I possibly can to the glory of God. But I will not be the only method of communication or or God's word in your life. I can't be. Don't look to me as such. So that's how we're going to end this series. 11 episodes. If you have not if you have not watched this whole series, you're missing out. I, I mean that. Like you're missing out. Go watch the whole series. You need to watch the whole thing. Because then you get to this episode and this is just the crescendo. You're like, oh man. Okay. Because this doesn't really make as much sense as it could doesn't mean you can't glean anything from this. It doesn't matter. But there's a lot more if you would just watch the first 10 episodes. Hey, I just want to thank you for all your support and prayers that make this ministry possible and help us to accomplish our mission. Your support makes it possible for us to create all the free resources we have available for anyone around the world. Our mission is to teach people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. So be sure to visit AboveReproachMinistry.com for all these free resources and to support this ministry. And if you're a new believer, be sure to check out the New Believer section on the homepage of our website and grab a copy of my book, Fruitful, while you're there. God bless you guys, and as always, keep moving towards Jesus.